Before I read the scriptures, I was just given a quick announcement to remind everybody that right after the service at the, in the chapel, uh, we will be Skyping with the dames. So if you're able to make it, please try to join us for that. I'll be reading three passages from scripture, beginning in Genesis chapter 5. And if you have one of the Bibles from the back, that is starting on page 4. So Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. says there, When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And then turn from there to Jude. Jude, verses 14 through 16. Jude 14 through 16 says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are the grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And then the last text is our text for this morning, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6. Hebrews 11, 5 and 6 says, By faith Enoch was taken up, so that he should not see death. And he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is the reading of God's word. There's a poet who remains unknown to me, and he wrote, or she, these lines. The soul is measured by its flights, some low and others high. The heart is known by its delights, and pleasures never lie. Notice the last two lines of this poem. The heart is known by its delights and pleasures never lie. What we find the most pleasure in tells the truth about our hearts. Where we find The greatest delight tells the truth about our souls. There was a young Scottish pastor and theologian nearly 350 years ago who wrote a book entitled The Life of God in the Soul of Man. His name was Henry Skugel. He wrote this little book when he was only 27. 
It was actually designed to be merely an encouraging letter to a friend in spiritual need. But it was so helpful that his friend began to circulate it privately. And then as it spread around, someone got a hold of it and published it. And now for over 300 years, it continues to be published again and again. And it has come to be considered a classic of Christian devotion. Schugel entered the University of Aberdeen at the age of 15. And when he was 19, he became the professor of philosophy. But sadly, only seven years later, he died. He died at the age of 27. But his little book, and I have a copy of it, with me this morning, and no, you, you may not have it. You may borrow it, first come, first serve, but it's, it's going to take careful thought. That little book had a profound effect on a multitude of people and continues to do so, and one of the people who was profoundly influenced by it was George Whitfield. And the moment that his friend Charles Wesley gave it to him, his life was changed by this little book. It was also a book that had a profound effect upon our friend John Piper. Here's something Schugel says in his little book. Listen carefully. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Piper says something similar. He says this, to know a soul's proportions, that would be its size, you need to know its passions. So all three of these writers are speaking really of the same thing. The soul is measured by its flights. The heart is known by its delights and pleasures never lie. They tell the truth. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. To know a soul's proportions, you need to know its passions. These are true and penetrating observations. They are a valid criteria to evaluate the health of our souls. And I have a question, actually several questions for you this morning on the front end of this message. By these standards, by these methods of measurement, by these criteria of evaluation, here's my question for you. How big is your soul? For what is your heart passionate. What are you living for? What are you fixated upon? What are you preoccupied with? What is the focus of your life? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What is your greatest desire? What is the number one pursuit of your life? Where do you find your deepest Satisfaction. The answers to these questions 
will give you a truthful and accurate readout on the condition of your soul and on the condition of my soul. Well, this morning we're privileged to look briefly at the faith-driven life of a man who kept both feet on the ground, and yet he was a husband, he was a father, he was a grandfather, he was a great-grandfather, he was a great-great-grandfather, he was a neighbor, and he was a prophet of God. And yet this man maintained a soul that soared as high as humanly possible in devotion to God. It soared and flew as high as a redeemed sinner's soul can fly while still on this earth. In fact, though he was still a sinner, this man experienced an ever-growing and increasing closeness and intimacy and fellowship with God until the very day that he went to be with the Lord. And you know who he is because Michael has just read his name to us repeatedly. He is Enoch. Here is a man who truly walked with God, yet in a way that every single one of us gathered here or listening via internet can walk. Let's look at his life together this morning and let's consider the second example of the kind of life that can be lived by all of us through faith. Don't forget that Hebrews 11 was written for our encouragement. And I'm assuming that some of you are discouraged today. I'm frequently discouraged with my Christian life and my walk and my devotion to God and the seeming lack of progress. And assuming that you are as well, please remember, dear brother and sister, the encouragement of the book of Hebrews. It was written to people who were struggling with the same things. They were a debilitated people. They were persecuted. They were tired. They were weary. They needed to be encouraged. They needed to be exhorted. And the apostle, the writer to the Hebrews, wrote this very letter. Some believe it was basically a sermon to encourage them and to build them up in their faith. Now, we have called this series By Faith for a pretty obvious reason. I hope it's dawned upon you. Those two words, by faith, are used no less than 18 times in this 11th chapter. And last week, with the help of Brother Tim, we saw how to worship God by faith. And we were reminded that we must come through the bloody mediation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And today... With the help of the Lord, we're going to see how to walk by faith. Last week, how to worship by faith. Today, how to walk by faith. Now, how shall I approach and develop this material? Well, here's what I want to do. I want us to just go back for a few moments to Genesis chapter 5 and then come back for a few moments to Hebrews chapter 11. And I want to just show you the big picture. I want to just quickly give you some perspective regarding the main information that is given to us and revealed to us in these two passages before I really open it up. 
So would you keep a mark somewhere in Hebrews 11? Go with me back to Genesis chapter 5. And in verses 18 through 24, we have this account of Enoch that Michael read to us. Seven verses, 18 through 24, 81 words in the ESV. I think it's something like 51 in Hebrew. And I just want to show you that here's what we know as matters of fact based upon this revelation. We know, first of all, from verse 18, that Enoch's father was Jared. We know that at the age of 62, Enoch became the father of Methuselah. We know that he lived another 300 years and had more children, sons, and daughters. And we know that at the age of 365, God took him. He took him to himself, and he was not to be found. Our ESV translation and many others sometimes just say, and he was not. That doesn't mean he quit existing. It means, in the Hebrew, he was not to be found. And lest I forget, we may legitimately let our imaginations roam for a few moments and think that probably at some point, Mrs. Enoch said to one of her children, would you go find dad and tell him it's time for supper? The meal is prepared, and they look and they can't find him. Well, maybe he's having devotion with God right now. Maybe he's in his favorite place of prayer and meditation. Look there. Mom, he isn't there. It's very likely that many people looked for Enoch, including those who hated him. After all, when Elijah disappeared in a similar way, they came to Elisha and said, could we go looking for him? We've got 50 search and rescue men on a team here. Can we go look for our master? And Elisha said, no, no. And they begged him and he said, okay, go. And they looked for three days and they couldn't find him. You can be certain they looked for Enoch. And the Bible says he was not found. And the Bible tells us why he was not found. In the last part of verse 24, it says, for God took him. And it doesn't, that isn't a nice way of saying that he died. And sometimes we speak that way, don't we? We say, the Lord came and took our brother home or took our sister home. And that's a true and a biblical way to speak of death. That is not what this passage means because Hebrews tells us very clearly that he did not see death. He did not die physically. So that's what we find in our Old Testament account. And by the way, there are only four places in the whole Bible that Enoch's name is mentioned. Michael read three of them. The one he didn't read is a lineage found in Luke chapter 3, somewhere around verse 36. Now, let's go back to Hebrews 11, and I hope to stay there for the rest of the message. What do we see on the surface of this passage? Well, it's quite different, because what we just saw in Genesis took us from the beginning to the end of Enoch's life. The writer to the Hebrews just jumps in to the end of his life on earth. Notice verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. So the first thing that we learn from this passage is of his, I'm going to use the word, of his rapture. 
Because that's really what it is. You know, we think about the return of Christ and the rapture of God's people, the dead in Christ will first be raised, and then Paul says, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air to meet the Lord and to usher him to earth for the judgment that immediately follows. And we rightfully call that a rapture because it is a being caught up. It is a being taken up. It is a being removed from one place to another place. So it's perfectly legitimate for me to speak of Enoch's rapture. He had a personal rapture, and that's where the writer to the Hebrews begins. He begins with the end of his life on earth. But then he goes on to mention, again, his disappearance. It says, he was not found because God had taken him. So, we have his rapture, we have his disappearance, and then the writer reminds us of this. It says, Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Last week, Tim reminded us that the word commend or commendation was used three times already. Twice in the passage that, or once in the passage that Pastor Keith preached and and twice in the passage that Tim brought to our attention. And now we come to the fourth usage of this word, commend. But notice the order. When was he commended? Was he commended after the rapture? No, he was commended before. So you see how the writer to the Hebrews is sort of working backwards. He's starting with his rapture, and then he reminds us that before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And I want to say this now, again, lest I forget. I hope I'll say it again in a few minutes, but just in case I don't, this word pleased is a translation based upon the Septuagint, not trying to get too difficult here, but the Septuagint is just the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And those scholars, when they went back to the passage in Exodus, or excuse me, Genesis that we have just read, when they came to those expressions used twice, walked with God, is what it says in the Hebrew, twice, Enoch walked with God, they with the help of God, and the writer to the Hebrews, with the inspiration of God, the infallible inspiration of God, chose to use the word pleased to express the meaning of walking with God. That's a very important thing because in a few minutes, I'm going to raise that question. So what did it mean for Enoch to walk with God? And what does it mean for us to walk with God? And the answer is to please him. And it's a very beautiful image. I'll come back to that in just a few moments. And then after verse 5, we have verse 6, which I'm just going to call a theology of faith. And wow, is there a lot of theology in verse 6. He tells us that we can't even begin to please God. In fact, it's utterly impossible to please God without faith. And then he talks about how essential that is in drawing near to God. Because in our drawing near to God, we must believe two things. One, that God actually exists, the God of the Bible, the God of self-revelation. And secondly, that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. So there it is. Those are the two passages. We have the Old Testament. We have the New Testament. When you put them together and, and you, you develop a kind of composite, you see the, the totality of what happened. 
Now, what I want to do, having just given you that, oh, by the way, we would need to slip in one other thing, wouldn't we? Did you notice the passage that Michael read from Jude? That passage teaches us as well that Enoch was a prophet. In fact, he was a very, very bold prophet. You saw how he cried out and announced probably repeatedly, maybe for decades, maybe for centuries. By the way, he only lived 365 years. Um, It makes you tired to think about it. But what really exhausts you is to think how long his son, Methuselah, lived. He lived 969 years. I'll be 69 at my next birthday. All I have to do is live another 900 years. And I'll be equal to Methuselah. Can you imagine a life of 969 years? In fact, in that Old Testament passage, as you see the ages of these men, and another thing you keep seeing over and over and over, and he died, 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 and he died. Seven times. Actually, six times before Methuselah. And then Methuselah died. And then Methuselah's son, Lamech, died. So you have eight times, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. But when we come to Enoch, and he was not to be found because God took him so that he did not see death. Enoch lived a very short life. 365 years doesn't seem short by our standards, but in comparison to his age, it would be like a man dying around the age of 35 in the prime of his life. So there it is. Now, what I, how I want to deal with this in just the time that remains is, again, quite simple. Here's my outline. I want us to consider Enoch's life and walk with God. Number two, Enoch's death-defying rapture. That's what I'm calling it. It's a death-defying rapture. If death could be personified, death is saying, I'm going to kill that guy. He's going to die. He's going to suffer the consequences of the fall. I'm going to get him sooner or later. And God says, no, you're not. I will defy you. And I will use his faith to defy you. So the second point will be Enoch's death-defying rapture. (coughs) Excuse me. And the final point will be the necessity and nature of faith. So let me hurry through these three points and try not to wear you out. Let's go back now and think together about Enoch's life and walk with God. You know what our tendency is with this curious guy? Our tendency is to get curious and to get fascinated with, I'm going to call it the superfluous, the part that's not really that critical. Say, I wonder how that rapture took place. wonder where he was. Did he just disappear or did he go up in the air, sort of like our Savior went up in the air and his disciples watched him disappear? Elijah went up in a chariot of fire. How did he go up? It's all non-essential. We don't have to get involved with the curiosity. What we really need to think about is what was so real about Enoch's life. We need to have a reality check about Enoch. 
So, you know, and when you just think about Enoch, what, what comes to your mind? Like he, was, he was a guy that never had to die. He's one of two people. There are only three persons in heaven, apparently, to our knowledge, that have bodies, the Lord Jesus and Enoch and Elijah. And we, we just go there. We just go there so quickly, and God doesn't want us to start there. He wants us maybe to get there. It's okay to think about it, but what he really wants us to realize is this, that before Enoch walked with God, he walked with the devil. You say, how do you dare to say that? (laughs) Because the Bible teaches that all of us are born with a sinful human nature in bondage to the devil himself and God can say of us what Jesus said to the unbelievers that he had to deal with. You are of your father, the devil, who was a liar from the beginning and abode not in the truth. The devil is our father before we're converted. That's why the Lord's prayer does not belong to the unconverted. An unconverted person should say, my father who art in hell, wicked be your name. Your kingdom is doomed and so forth. And so for non-Christians to repeat the Lord's Prayer with no understanding is obnoxious to God. Enoch was born a sinner, folks, because everybody's born a sinner. Only one human being was not born a sinner. Only one human being never needed to be converted, our Savior. Enoch was a sinner. Enoch did not always have faith. Enoch was once characterized by unbelief. He needed to be saved. He needed to be converted. He needed to be born again. Don't forget that about Enoch. When he was converted, we don't know. Some would suppose that it was around the time that Methuselah was born because it seems to say in the text that he walked with God. But all it may be meaning is that he walked with God another 300 years. But obviously he didn't start walking with God. Nobody starts walking with God. By nature, we walk away from God. We need his grace to bring us to him in repentance and faith. And then we began to walk with him. But not until then. Enoch was a sinner who needed to be converted. He was an unbeliever who needed to come to faith. And the second thing I would point out is this. That after he got saved, if I may just use that terminology, because that's what it comes down to, all Old Testament saints came to that point in their lives where they believed, they trusted, they got saved, they got converted, they looked to the Messiah to come. They were born again, just like we're born again. After Enoch was converted and saved, guess what? He remained a sinner. (laughs) Don't think about Enoch as a perfectly holy sinless man. Don't ever conclude that, well, God took him and he must have been sinless. That's impossible. He didn't become sinless until he took him. So as you, and you see there's encouragement here. I'm going to come back to this because this is our hope. Enoch didn't go from being a wicked man to a perfectly holy man the moment he was saved and started to walk with God. He was still a sinner. He needed, like us, to repent daily and to trust in Christ again and again and again and again and again daily. He needed, like us, to be sanctified. 
There's no doubt but what Enoch got impatient with his wife and said things he shouldn't have said. There's no doubt but what he got impatient with his children and disciplined them in anger because he was a human being, because he was still a sinner. And I think it's very doubtful that Enoch never struggled like all men with lust. I'm quite sure he was tempted to fudge on the truth. I'm quite sure he struggled with unbelief. I'm quite sure that he had to rise above the natural fear of prophesying to a wicked generation. And the last thing I just want to say by way of being realistic about Enoch is he lived in a really, really, really bad world. How do we know that? Well, we know it in various ways, but I'll just give you two. Number one, you just get out of chapter 5 of Genesis, and you only have two more. You've got, you know, Methuselah and Lamech, and Lamech gives birth to Noah. And guess what things were like when Noah came along? They were so bad that God wiped out the entire earth and only spared eight people, and probably all eight of them weren't really righteous. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I'm telling you, it was really, really bad. And when you listen to the passage that Michael read for us from Jude, and you hear what he had to cry out against, this ungodliness, this ungodliness, this ungodliness, this ungodliness four times about people who say terrible things about God, that's when he lived. So don't ever think about Enoch as a guy that uh, got married, had some kids, and said, family, I'm sorry, honey, I love you dearly, but God is calling me to a life of a monastic life. I'm going to go off, and I'm going to become a mystic, and I'm going to spend all of my time every day, even while I'm eating, and hopefully while I'm sleeping, communing with God. I love you all. Farewell. No. If you just assume he had five kids, I did a little math this week. I thought, well, if he had five and the five had five, you get 25. And the 25 had five, you come up with 125. And then it goes to 200 and some. And finally, by the time, all you have to do is figure, you know, he waited 65 years to have children. Let's, let's assume they all waited 65 years, which is not something we must assume. It's pretty easy to conceive of him having, as I said, not only children, but grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren, even in 365 years of life, probably had somewhere between 800 and 1,000 in his family. Imagine going to Enoch's birthday party. That's what his life was like. He lived in the real world. He didn't live live in a monastery. He was a husband. He was a father. He had a job. He didn't make his wife provide for the family. And he was a prophet. And he didn't get his income from being a prophet. You can be sure of that. So there you go. 
Enoch was like Elijah. He was a man subject to passions as we are. And that's where the encouragement comes. And so I give you the very first, I hope, maybe you've drawn some encouragement all on your own. I hope you have. But if you haven't, let me just say this to you, folks. Enoch was a normal man. He was once unconverted without faith. And then he became a believer who needed to grow in grace. And he struggled with all the temptations that the world and the flesh and the devil submit to believers. And he had to grow in grace. And guess what? He did grow in grace. Did he become sinless? Of course not. Are you discouraged this morning? I mean, I'm not going to ask for a raising of hands, but I'll bet you 75% of you would say you're discouraged at least about some aspect of your life and your Christian life, particularly about your Christian life. Well, find comfort. You're just like Enoch, and you can experience, listen, you can experience the grace of God that enabled Enoch to walk more and more closely to God. You can, because he was a normal human being. You wives, I'm sure you're discouraged, and your husbands are often a great source of that discouragement. I know that because I know myself. You're discouraged with trying to keep up with life and still have some kind of a meaningful walk with God. And your times of devotion don't seem to be meaningful. Take that weary, sad heart to God and repent and trust and ask for help and know that it it is obtainable. You can and you will make progress in your Christian life. The same is true for all of us as husbands. The same is true for all of us as frustrated, perhaps, and tired parents. The same is true for all of you young people whose lives are also difficult. They are difficult. We know that. It's not all fun and games for you, even though your parents sometimes like to talk about it that way. You've got problems. You've got burdens. And if you're a believer, you're discouraged with your Christian life. There's hope. It's in the God of Enoch. It's in the grace of that God. It's in, in particular, in the enlargement of the grace of faith. Don't forget, by faith, Enoch was caught up and was not to be found. So, be realistic, be humbled, be repentant, be believing, and be hopeful and be encouraged because not only is the same grace available for us that Enoch had, but I think more grace because the blessings of the new covenant are clearly superior to the blessings of the old covenant and particularly the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So what did it mean for Enoch to walk with God just very quickly? And by the way, I'm only going to spend a limited time with the last two points. What did it mean for Enoch to walk with God? Well, the, word, the words walk with imply something, don't they? They imply their relational words. In fact, the Bible says, how can two people walk together if they're not agreed? 
You got a division with somebody, you don't call up somebody you're mad with or they're mad at unless you're doing something really biblical. Hey, we need to talk and be reconciled. But probably you're not going to say, hey, let's go for a walk in the park. Not with somebody you're angry with. So these relational words, walking with God, speak of fellowship. They speak of intimacy. They speak of agreement. They speak of affection. They speak of mutual enjoyment. They speak of delightful spending of time together. That's what it means in a very general way. And this is an extraordinary thing to be said about someone, and I hope it will be said about us. The book of Hebrews, as I've already pointed out, describes this walking as he pleased God. Wouldn't you like to have it be written on your tombstone, so-and-so walked with God, so-and-so was pleasing to God? Well, this fellowship and this intimacy and this affection actually comes down to some pretty real stuff, though. It's not just emotional and subjective. It's not just all how you feel. It comes down to things like this. Loving God and loving his ways and loving his word and loving his commandments and loving his people and loving his church. It comes down to things like seeking to advance his glory It comes down to dialogue. Can you imagine two people taking a walk together and never saying a word to each other? That would be awkward. The whole goal is to commune and to talk. And we're to have dialogue with God. We're to talk to him in our prayers. We're to hear back from him in his word. We're to worship him publicly and privately, publicly through the ordinances of the church, privately in our devotion. We're to avoid grieving him. When you're walking with someone and they say something very hurtful to you and they break your heart, you don't feel like walking with them. For us to walk with God, we must not grieve him. We should try not to. If we do, we deal with it in a gospel way very quickly. God, I'm sorry. That was wrong. That was a sin. Holy Spirit, I grieved you. Thank you, Jesus, for paying for that. I confess it. Deliver me from it. I walk in the forgiveness that the gospel offers, and let's keep talking. Deal with it and keep talking. Walking with God means crying out against wickedness like Enoch did as a prophet. It means telling the world the truth about their souls and about sin and about judgment and about Christ and about the return of Christ and about grace and how we can be forgiven. It means keeping short accounts with God. As I just illustrated, quickly pray. I hope you do that. Don't ever let any sin on your part go through the rest of the day so that at night you hope you remember and say, God, now let me remember all the things. No, quickly. Say, God, I'm sorry. That was wrong. Jesus, thank you for dying for that. I thank you that that's been paid for. Holy Spirit, I'm sorry I grieved you. But I walk in the cleansing of the blood of Christ. Help me now. Do that. Do that all day long, repeatedly. That's part of what walking with God is all about. And as I've said now two times, it means pleasing God. Pleasing God in those kinds of ways. So that's... 
That's a word about the, the life and walk of Enoch. Please don't forget, he was born a follower of the devil. He had to be saved. And even after he was saved, he had to grow in grace. Now, disproportionately, just a word about Enoch's death-defying rapture. I've already told you why I'm calling it that. And I'm going to say relatively little about it in comparison to what I've just done. And the first thing I want to say is he didn't just get himself raptured. Now, you can see where the um, name-it-and-claim-it kind of theology could come in here and do abuse to uh, verse 5. It says, hey, it says by faith Enoch was taken up. I'm going to get taken up. I can do it if I have enough faith. We talked to Enoch that day, said, what are you going to do today, Enoch? What you? I'm going to heaven without dying. Yes, I believe it's possible. I believe God can do it. I'm going to claim it by faith. By faith, Enoch was taken up. He was taken up not because of some decisive, determined act of his Faith. It was because God was ready to take him home for reasons that are ultimately known only to God. We don't really, that's another one of those curious questions. Why did God do that? I'm going to submit some possibilities. God did call Enoch home. And I think it's good to point out that in spite of all of the reality that I've just shared concerning his ongoing sinfulness, surely we must also believe that. Enoch was a very holy, increasingly holy man of God. You can't walk with God for 300 years and not grow in grace. You can't walk with God 20 years and not grow in grace. You shouldn't walk with God a single year and not grow in grace. He was surely a holy man. He was surely a ripe saint. But, dear brothers and sisters, we shouldn't expect the same experience. That would be nice. Who likes death? The fear of death is common to human nature. We would love to miss death. But that was exceptional, and exceptions are designed to prove the rules. So what was the point? Well, possibly it is this. This was God's way of demonstrating in a proof-positive way that the principle of death is subject to God. God is the conqueror over death. God is the sovereign over death. That's what our New Testament tells us, that someday death will be swallowed up in victory. Christ conquered death. That's why his resurrection was critical. If he didn't rise from the dead, then it would mean the atonement didn't satisfy God. It would mean the wages of sin had not been paid. And the wages of sin are death. Jesus conquered death. We sing about it. And John Owen wrote that famous work, the death of death in the death of Christ. And we sing about that. Death has been conquered, but as the last enemy, it's still allowed to take mankind until the day that Jesus comes back and raises all of the dead. And even for the wicked, there will be no more death, but perpetual torment and separation from God. 
But it's like a foretaste. It's like God says, watch this. You who wonder about the whole problem of death, let me just show you that I'm sovereign over death. Enoch, up here. What, I, I don't have to die? No, you don't have to die. I'm dealing with death in my coming Messiah. And you're trusting in the coming Messiah. Your sins will be paid. I can take you home anytime I want. It's a foretaste. It's a prototype. It's a sample. That death is no problem to God. And death does not have the final word with God. That's exactly, by the way, what will happen to all who are alive when Jesus comes back. You know that. I hope you've already thought about that. And well, I think I've alluded to it. That when Jesus comes back and the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ who are alive will be caught up. And there will be no death for them. But with the exception of the generations that's alive when Jesus comes and these two men in the Old Testament, all of the rest of us are going to die. But we die in hope. We die in faith. We die in confidence. Because death has been conquered by our Savior. And God gave an illustration of it even in the Old Testament. And after all, there really isn't much difference between the death of a believer and what happened to Enoch. Enoch didn't die But what happened? Okay, as I said, he instantly went to be with God. How long did it take Enoch to come into the presence of God? Second, when a saint dies and breathes their last, how long does it take for that soul to come into the presence of God? A second. No more sin, no more sorrow. Immediate presence of God, pure bliss. The only difference is the saints that are in heaven don't have bodies. I don't think any of them are looking at Elijah in their spiritual eyes and Enoch and saying, man, I wish I had a body. This isn't good up here. I don't like this. No. We're going to get a body. We're going to have a glorified body. There's really not much difference between the experience of Enoch and death. So don't worry about it. And, you know, it's death. The death itself in that final moment is so brief that it hardly can be called death. Because the second your soul leaves your body, the second you're in the presence of God and now you're living like you never lived before. It's not like... Death is horrible. The process leading to it can be very difficult and require much grace. And we pray for people and we hope that won't happen to us. But death itself is is one second. And we go into the presence of God. And we go into the presence of God who proved that he conquered death by taking Enoch home, what we might call prematurely, not through the normal means. So... When communion and fellowship with God are restored, deliverance from death is certain. It's certain. Now, I just, my last word, and now I'm even more disproportionately going to be short. A lot on point number one, less than point number two, even less than point number three. And that is that, and, and there shouldn't be. This is, this is worth a whole series. In our eldership, we talked about how easy it would be to take Hebrews 11 and easily preach on it for a year. We don't think that's the wisest thing to do. But this point that I'm going to make right now really does deserve more time. But you know what? You've got it. 
There's nothing you can't find in studying Hebrews 11, 6 that I'm not going to be able to take time to tell you today. There's nothing you can't find. Just get a couple of good commentaries, think about it, pray about it. What does verse 6 tell us? Well, it's a theology of faith. Let's read it. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Just be reminded that you'll never, ever, 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 ever be able to please God or walk with him without faith. See how he just pulls that argument? He finishes with verse 5. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as, as having pleased God. And the writer says, by the way, know this, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So what would you conclude about Enoch? You would conclude that he had faith. Does Genesis 5 tell you he had faith? No. Hebrews 11 tells you he had faith. And the argument of the writer is very simple. You cannot please God without faith. And yet, in verse 5, it says that he was commended before he was caught up because he pleased God. So what does that mean he had? I've already asked that. It means he had faith. And so let's go from verse 6 knowing this, that it's utterly and absolutely impossible to ever please God without faith. And then he just expands on that a little bit and says, let me tell you two things about faith. He said, first of all, this is what you must believe. You have to believe that God is and that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. You start with what I heard an old black preacher. I love that preacher. I wish I wish I could have met him. He was in Los Angeles, E.V. Hill. What a gifted preacher. What a dear man of God. I look forward to meeting him. And I heard him one time dealing with this passage. And he said, a lot of people don't deal with the isness of God. The isness. And I never heard about the isness before. But it's good. You must believe that he is. And it doesn't just mean vaguely, oh, I believe there's a God. I'm sure millions of people believe there there is a God. No, it is the God who has revealed himself you must believe is. He is. It's not just he is. It's he is. And to the Hebrew readers, what do you think that must have meant? Just think, have you ever heard any words sort of similar to, you must believe that he is anything Does that ring any bells? He is. Moses is getting his call to deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt. And he says, God, what do I tell him when it comes to who sent you? Tell him, I am sent you. One of God's personal names revealing his eternality. He never became. He is. And when Jesus speaks in John 8, the thing that makes his hearers so boiling mad at him that they want to kill him instantly is when he said, oh, by the way, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. So we have to believe 
in the existence of the God who has revealed himself, the covenant-making, keeping God of the Old and New Testament. We have to believe that self-revelation about God. And part of that self-revelation includes that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And I wish I had time to go into like Jeremiah 29 and the other passages that give us all this encouragement that if you seek me with all of your heart, you will surely find me. He rewards those who seek him. And boy, how that's been abused. Hey, you know how to get awards and rewards from God? Just seek him. If you have enough faith, you can get whatever you want. Wait a minute. He is the reward. Without faith, it's impossible to believe him. He who draws near to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And the ultimate reward is God. No wonder Piper entitled his book, The Gospel is God. When you boil all the good news down about all of the sub-doctrines, atonement and reconciliation and adoption and everything, all of them are necessary means to an end. The end is you get God. He is our reward. He is our exceeding great reward. And it's certain. And I just want to say to you in conclusion, my dear unconverted friends who are here today, you can have God. You can have the ultimate reward. God. You simply must believe that he's who he has revealed himself to be. And with your limited understanding of that, go to him and say, God, be my God. Forgive me of my sins through Jesus Christ who died to take the wrath I deserve. Be my God. I'm seeking you. And then hear echoing in your mind all of those promises that say, no man will ever seek me and not find me. I will be found of those and by those who seek me. Dear unconverted friend and children, children, especially you, seek God. Now's the time to seek God. Don't wait until you're older to seek God. Enoch may have started when he was a teenager. He may have started when he was 10. I don't know. I don't believe that he started to walk with God when Methuselah was born. That's my personal belief. That's just when the the last 300 years of his life began. Now is the time to seek God, boys and girls. Seek him. We don't want to make you say a little prayer, follow me, say what daddy says, dear Jesus, please forgive me of my sins and so forth. And then you become a 20-year-old someday and say, I don't know if I'm really saved or not. I said what my parents told me to say. I did what my church told me to say. I did what my pastor told me to say. I'm telling you to say something, or I'm telling you to do something. I'm not telling you what to say. I'm telling you to seek God. Seek him. And seek him through Jesus Christ by faith. And know that the promise is that if you seek him, you will find him. And he will become your savior. And the rest of us, this is my ultimate conclusion We who have found God must never quit seeking him either. We who are walking with God must never quit walking with him either. 
And that walk can get better and better and better and better. And it should. So though you're discouraged, just go to God with an holy argument and say, God, didn't Enoch make progress in his Christian life? And you'll, by faith, hear him say, yes. Did he do that on his own power and self-will? Well, he did have responsibilities. Well, my question is, did he, God, did he do that entirely on his own power of will? No, I gave him grace. Then God, give me grace to grow in grace so that I may walk with you like Enoch and be pleasing. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we want to be like Enoch and we pray that you will help us all to walk with you, be pleasing to you by faith. Strengthen and increase the faith of every individual believer in this assembly. Increase the intimacy of communion and fellowship with you of every single believer. Increase, O God, our ability to please you. We thank you that you are most pleased with us when we are most pleased with you. And so we ask that you will help us to be more and more pleasing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us for worship this morning. Let me leave you with this word from Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen.